We'll try it again. Good morning. Much better. You're, you're improving. Uh, you keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 6. Uh, thank you, Nathan, for reading there. If, you're gonna, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a blue one near you. If there's not one in front of you, go ahead right now. Just embrace the offering. Just turn around and ask somebody behind you. We want you to have one of those so you can follow along with us and understand that what we're speaking about today comes from the Word of God. It's not our opinion. Uh, so Matthew 6, later we're going to be in Luke 10, but I'll tell you when to turn there. Let's, let's start with a word of prayer this morning. God, we thank you for the opportunity we've had already to worship you. God, we thank you for the opportunity for just, just to have life and breath and time today. And Lord, we thank you for each and every person who decided to invest some of that gift here. And I ask now that you would, uh, you would come through for them, Lord, that you would speak and you would teach and that you would move. Uh, that they would not regret being here, but, but know that you brought them here for your own distinct purposes. And, and I pray that you would give us the ability to humbly receive what you have for us today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a great epidemic in our world. There's a disease that is rushing through our country. And I believe most, if not all of us, are afflicted by it. It's the disease of hurriedness. You might be wondering, is this me? Well, I can tell you there's, there's a few things that you might be doing that would be dead giveaways if you have a disease of hurriedness. Number one, if you believe that anyone or anything coming into your life that you didn't schedule ahead or plan on that day is an interruption, right, then you have the disease of hurriedness. If you pull up to a stoplight and there's multiple lanes and there's multiple cars in front of you and you start investigating the make, model, and year of each car, you start looking what type of license plate they have, you start trying to determine what type of engine they may have, if you peer through the window to see whether the driver is young or old, male or female, and all this is so you can determine which car will pull off at the green light faster, so you can get behind it, you have this disease of hurriedness. If you go to the grocery store and you're going to check out and you start scanning all the different lanes, trying to decide which one you're going to get through quicker, you have this disease. By the way, if you're good at this, you don't just count people, you count items. Right? Everyone knows that four people with three items apiece are going to get through much faster than two people with cartfuls. Right? That's just basic math, people. Come on. Right? And by the way, just a, just a PSA on the side here. All these stores that have U-Scan now, can I, just do, can I just be honest with you? U-Scan's not for everybody. It just isn't. Right? If you don't know where barcodes are on things, right? if technology scares you, if you write a check in the U-Scan, you should be put in jail. Right? So just, it's not for everyone. If you do those things, just go to the cashier already, just for all the rest of our sakes, right? I'm old enough to remember when that, that every family ended the day by sitting down together and having a home-cooked meal. Right, but that takes a lot of time, don't you? You've got you to make it, and you've got to eat it, and you've got to clean up afterwards. And so then we started going to restaurants. And then that wasn't fast enough. And so in the 1960s, there was a new type of restaurant introduced to America called fast food. Not good food. Right, not healthy food, not tasty. They just said, just put the word fast on it, people will come. And guess what we did? We came in droves. It now owns the biggest portion of the restaurant market. And then, after a while, we started thinking about it and thought, you know what? You still have to drive to the restaurant. You still have to park your car. You've got to walk all the way into the restaurant. You've got to order, and then you have to take the time to sit there and eat, and then you leave. And that's just not quick enough. So we established drive through lanes so families can eat in minivans as God intended. Right? And, and the greatest part about this is now when you're too hurt to even stop for dinner, just reach into your car seat, like in between them, just pull out all the old fries and chicken nuggets. You're going to eat them there, right? I've seen your vans, you sick people, right? <laughs> Thing is, we're just in a hurry. 
hospitals are, are trying to pick up on this. You remember uh, regional hospital failing because they, they put up that big billboard here in Terre Haute and said your average wait time would guarantee be 30 minutes or less, but then they actually had a counter and it kept being above 30 minutes, so they had to get rid of it, right? But the hospital in Detroit actually did this, right? They actually said guaranteed 30 minutes or less, you come to the emergency room, and business went up 30%. Now, the mortality rate rose 130%, right? But people were dying fast, and that's all we ask, right? It, do you ever feel like, right? You ever, do you ever feel like you're just constantly in a hurry? Well, it's because you are. And the only explanation that I can come up with this is that you're just entirely way too busy. The only explanation I can come up with is, is that I'm just entirely way too busy. You ever feel like there just aren't enough hours in the day? That you wake up and the first thing that hits you in the morning is, how in the world am I supposed to get done everything I'm supposed to get done today? And this constant press, does it, feel you, does it leave you feeling stressed out and worn out and run down? Let's, let's just have group therapy this morning, just honesty. Show of hands, how many of you had a really crazy, hectic rush morning just to get here today? Okay, the rest of you are lying, right? I know the truth, Okay. Harvard Business Review analyzed, they actually took the time to analyze hundreds of thousands of Christmas letters that were sent over each of the last decades, starting in the 60s, moving through today. If you don't know what these Christmas letters are, there's, uh, there's these like, um, I, I guess, a notebook on your life where you send with your Christmas card a letter and everything's happened last year as if people think your life is interesting and are actually going to read it, right? And so they analyzed all this, how Harvard got all this, I don't know, but they're from Harvard, they can figure it out. And they, so they got all these letters and they analyzed it and they said one phrase from the 60s to today, has dramatically increased more than all other phrases. You know what the phrase is? Crazy schedules. As we're writing about our years, we begin more and more just talk about how crazy our schedules are. There have been endless technological and societal advancements brought forth, and they're all pitched to us that they're going to save us time. Right? You don't need to write a letter and put it in the mailbox and mail it anymore. You can just write somebody an email on Facebook. Okay, you, don't, you don't need to travel to see anyone. You can just Skype them or FaceTime them. You don't need to, to actually go to the bank. You can take a picture of your check and they'll deposit it for you. All this is pitched to us. It's going to save you so much time. But has it? Do we actually have more time than we used to? Are we not actually more hurried and busier than we've ever been? And here's why this matters this morning. It matters because this is killing us. If you think, man, that's an overstatement, talk about going too far, well, well, hear me out. The evidence is undeniable. You cannot argue it. Every single major chronic disease in America is on the rise. It's through the roof compared to not just 30 years ago. And it's inarguable this is attributed to our lifestyle, this constant chronic enduring stress, which leads us rush, which leads us making poor dietary choices, which leads to a lack of rest. It's killing our bodies. There's been multiple surveys done of Americans in, in cities and in rural life, of males and females, young and old, and they've all asked the question, if, if you could be given one more extra hour every single day, what would you do with it? You know what the by far the number one answer is? Sleep. You all knew it. Because we're tired. Because we're killing ourselves. And we're killing more than our bodies. We're killing our souls. See, your soul is the part of you that's designed to connect with the God who made you. And this is important because that God is never in a hurry. We're told that he's constantly at work. We're told that he, he's the only one who never tires. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. But he's often taking his sweet time. You realize that, right? He did not design us to fly around out of control, stressed out all the time. And so when he speaks, he speaks softly. 
This is Elijah in the cave in 1 Kings 19. He's waiting to hear from God in this huge, massive storm with lightning and thunder comes and the, and the word of God says, but God was not in the storm. And, it's, and, this, and this, the mountain is consumed by fire and the word of God says, but God was not in the fire. But then he came and he came in a still, small voice you could barely hear. When God speaks, he speaks softly. When he moves, he moves at his speed and in his time. And when he works, he works at the pace that he sets. And so when our lives are filled to the brim with hurry and appointments and, and tasks and games and meetings and concerts and practice and on and on and on. What, and when we zoom from one thing to the next, what we often zoom right by is God. But what we miss the most is what he is up to. What we don't hear in all the noise is what he's trying to tell us. In the Gospels, you see this wide range of emotions from Jesus. And when Jesus feels an emotion, he feels it fully. He's angry enough to turn over the tables in the temple and drive out people with a whip. He's sad enough at Lazarus' tomb that he doesn't cry. He weeps, right? He, he feels great emotion. You know what you never, ever see from Jesus in the Gospels? He's never in a hurry. Ever. Jairus meets him that one day and says, my daughter is literally on her deathbed. She's dying now. I need you to get to my house immediately. And so he agrees to go with him. And he's trying to work his way through the crowd. And there's the woman there that touches the edge of his cloak, looking for healing. And what does Jesus do? He stops. And he takes the time to love on her and doesn't treat her as if she's an interruption. Little children come rushing up to Jesus one day, and he's got all these task-oriented, really serious disciples that, no, we've got adult stuff to do. He's got to get this teaching done. There's healings that got to be done. We've got to get to the next town. And they, so get the kids away. And what does Jesus say? No, 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 stop it. Let them come. Let them come hang out with me for a while. He's walking through the crowded streets. There's people pressing on him every time, always asking for something. And he says, hey, Zacchaeus, why don't you get down from that tree? Because here's what I'm going to do today. I'm just going to go hang out at your house for a while. He's never in a hurry. And by the way, before you think he didn't have anything to do, in three years' time, he was supposed to flip the entire religious structure on its head. He was supposed to reveal the eternal God to the world. He was supposed to train up the leaders that would eventually lead his church. He was to fulfill every single prophecy that was written by him. He was to take down the organized religious system of Israel. He was to pay the price for the sins of anyone who believed. And he's supposed to defeat this really small thing called death. Right? And then he was going to launch the church and ascend to heaven. It's not like he didn't have enough to do. Yet somehow he was able to walk that balance and never be in a hurry. And so I want you to understand at the start this morning, the call today is not for you to get more recreation. I'm not going to ask you to get lazier or be more apathetic or nihilistic. There, there has to be a way that we can avoid those things and still stop killing ourselves. There has to be a way to get more of God into our lives and our schedule. There has to be a way to stop missing out on so much of what he has for us. And thankfully there is. Because if we're honest today, most of these wounds are self-inflicted. Right? Most of us, all we have to do is look in the mirror and realize we've caused this. And so what I want us to do today, all together, starting with me, is to just take a fresh look at one of the greatest gifts you've ever been given. And that's time. Is that how you view time today, as a gift? Or is it just something that you've always sort of taken for granted, that it will always be there? Psalm 139 tells us that, that all of our days were numbered in God's book before a single one of them came to be. They were laid out before us as a gift before they happened. 
In light of this, Psalm 90, the psalmist is praying and he says this. He says to God, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. He's asking God, can you help me view time rightly and understand that it will not go on forever for me. I have a limited time here. So I want you to imagine, right? I want you to imagine a bank that every single night at midnight, right at the start of midnight, will deposit $1,440 into your account. I know what you're thinking. Where, where can I sign up for this bank, Right? But there are a few stipulations and rules this. That every day, that's exactly what you get right at midnight. That's yours to spend. But whatever you don't spend in the next 24 hours, you don't get to keep it all. And whatever you spend frivolously or waste on pointless things that don't matter, you don't ever get a chance to recoup that or get that back. And you'll never, ever get more than $1,440 every night at midnight. That's what we're given every single day in time. 1,440 minutes. Now you throw out the, the hours you need to sleep, and you do need to sleep, by the way. You throw out time you got to use to eat and get ready and go to work and go to the bathroom, all those things. That, that gets much smaller. It's way less. And so what do you do with that time? Right, what, do you, what do you do with that gift? There's, there's no guarantee you're going to have that time tomorrow, but you, but you have it today. And once, And this is the thing about time. Once it's gone, you never get it back. That's why we chronically undervalue time. We underrate how important it is. You lose almost anything else in this life, you can get it back. You lose money, you can earn it back. You lose stuff, you can buy it back. You lose possessions, you can find a way to earn those back. But if you lose time or people, you can't get those back. And so to really value the gift of time, we need to take a hard look at how we use it. We need to understand why we've been given it. And we need to determine what our aim is for it. And I've got really good news for you today. All of those answers are given to us in God's word. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus lays out for us, and, and what I would argue is as clear a way as possible, what our lives should be about. And in this, in this passage that Nathan read for you first, he paints a picture of, of those people who are chasing what he describes as lesser things. Now in this series that we're calling instead, this is a series we're, we're doing leading up to Christmas, we're asking the question, what are we not going to do for Christmas this year? And Because each week we're going to look at common mistakes, common pursuits that people make, and then ask, well, okay, we're not going to do that this year, and say, here's what we're going to do instead. And so last week, if you were here, you remember we looked at greed and materialism and the pull and draw it has on us, this, this lie that more will one day be enough. And so we're not going to believe that this year, we're going to push that to the side, and instead we're going to choose gratitude and contentment as the greatest gain. And I mention that to you because the interesting thing to me in this section of Matthew 6 is that as Jesus talks about these people who are pursuing much lesser things that aren't important, he's not talking about greed at all. He's not talking about materialism at all. He's not talking about money or, or luxuries at all. He, look at what he does. He describes a group of people and he says they're constantly worried, that they're running around chasing. That's a good picture of us today, right? And then he says they think like pagans. Right, so that means they think like atheists. They think like there isn't a God who's looking out for them. And so their posture is that of an atheist, right? And so, but what are they chasing? Food, clothing, shelter. Well, that's not luxuries at all, is it? I mean, those are basic necessities for survival. And Jesus is saying in Matthew 6, if, wait a minute, if your life mission is to survive... Right, if that's what you're working for, then you're wasting this gift of time. And your posture is one who doesn't believe in a God at all. Your belief is that it's on you to survive. And can I be honest with you this morning? The things that I run after, the things that I chase are way less important than those things. And he counteracts, he said, I want you guys to look at two different things. I want you to look at the birds and the flowers. 
You ever seen a bird look stressed out? You ever seen a bird look worn down? Every morning when you hear birds singing, you ever hear a bird break from its song and then start screaming at another bird? It's tweeting along. It's like, wait a minute, that's my worm, you big-faced jerk, you know? It doesn't, it doesn't happen, right? Birds don't store up. They don't have savings accounts or IRAs or food pantries, and yet what, what happens? God covers them. Right, you ever, you ever seen flowers work really hard? You ever seen flowers have like those motivational signs, like hard work beats talent. When talent doesn't work hard, let's go, right? No. They don't loyal or toil or labor, but yet they're clothed in splendor. And then Jesus asked the question, how much more is God going to take care of you? And then he doesn't just expose these pursuits as faulty. He tells us what we should be chasing instead. Look at verse 31. Matthew 6, verse 31. He says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But verse 33 is key. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus Christ says the aim of your life should be to seek first the God who made you. That you're to pursue his kingdom. And then when he says to seek his righteousness, what that means is you try and imitate him more and more. You try to become more and more and more like Christ and he says you're to do this first above all else of highest importance. And he said, well, what about all the other stuff? What about what I'm going to eat? What I'm going to drink? And what I'm gonna... He's like, no, no, no. You trust God with that. Because the aim of your life is to pursue him. Do you realize how rarely we live this way? Do you realize how often this verse is quoted and how little it's actually obeyed? But man, we, we need to do this. Acts chapter 17, Paul is speaking in front of that group of philosophers at Mars Hill, and he's trying to get them to understand who the God of heaven and earth is. And he says he's not made by human hands, he's not served by human hands, he doesn't need anything, but he actually says the God of heaven and earth chose when and where we would live. That he determined, that he predetermined that in his wisdom, and then he tells them why. Do you know why he said? Acts 17, 27, he said, God did this so they would seek out for him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. You see, the first and greatest aim in your life is to connect with the God who made you. And once that's in place, we can never lose sight of what that first aim is. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The race marked out for us is the life, is those days that were predetermined before we ever lived. That's the race marked out for you. And as you run that race, you fix your eyes on Jesus. Because with your eyes fixed on Jesus, the aim of your life remains abundantly clear. And everything that he gives us becomes pointers to him, not the point of our life. This is the most chronic mistake we as humans make. What we do is we take time and we take money and we take our family, we take our resources, we take pleasure and food. And we take all these amazing gifts from God. And instead what we do is we make them the point. They become what we worship. They become what we think about. They become what we pour ourselves into. They become the single point of our life. And they're designed, the idea is that they would point us to the giver of those things. We just missed the last step. Which is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, you seek first, above everything else, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Which means that every gift you have has been given to you for a purpose. 
this gift of life, this gift of time, the gift of your resources and talents and home and family and children and possessions, they're all meant to cause you to rejoice in the God who gave them. They're all meant to not end with you. But instead, you take those gifts and through them, you bless others and build his kingdom. This is why how we use time and what we do with it is so important, right? It is a gift from God, and one day we're all going to stand before him and give account for how we use this gift. And we get one shot at it. And by the way, once time is up, we don't get it back again. So do, do we use our time at this church? Do we use our time the way he demands? Do we pursue the things that he told us to pursue? Do we make the most of this incredible gift? Or if we're honest, do we often use this gift for selfish reasons? And chase things that don't ultimately matter or give just far too much of it away on things that have nothing to do with his kingdom building. Believe it or not, the way to answer those questions has less to do with what's on your calendar. You can't answer this question just by looking at your calendar. There's certainly wisdom in saying no to more things. We're going to talk about that today. But hear me, this is, this is crucial you understand this this morning. Why you do things is so much more important than what you do. Okay, this is not unlike what we talked about last week. What owns your heart is what matters. Look higher in chapter 6 in verse 21. Jesus still speaking in Matthew 6, 21. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is always the question for Jesus. The ultimate question that's always laid before you is this. Where is your treasure? Because what you treasure will own your heart. And so this morning, we're going to ask you to take inventory, really hard look at your life, to take a really good, honest inventory of your life. But I want you to track two things together, investment and intensity. Right? Because when we, when we separate these two, what happens is we miss the point, and all that happens this morning is just one giant guilt trip. And that's not the aim, right? And so as we look at investment, as we look at intensity, I want you to, throughout this to ask yourself and ask God, what is it truly that I've given my heart to? Right, what owns my devotion? What, what, what owns my passions? Right, and, it's, and it's important that we take those things together. For instance, if we did just investment alone, right? And, I, and we could actually say, would you, in your bulletin, just draw out a pie chart and give little, little sections, little pieces of the pie to what you've given time to in the past week or the past month. And then we put your, you put your pie chart on the screen. And I just looked at you and you go, hmm, for the God of majors, it's only worth that little sliver, huh? That would do no one any good. Right, because all that is is just guilt and remorse, and that's not what we're about. And secondly, it, 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 it misunderstands time together altogether. Because there is no such thing as God time and you time. You understand that all of it's his. So at your job and at your, your recreation and at your hobby and with your, with your team or with your band, all of that thing, all of those times you can be using to seek first God's kingdom. It's why we're not going to look at investment alone this morning. We also have to look at intensity. But we can't look at intensity alone either, right? The intensity is what gets you excited, what gets you passionate. But, but we, can't, we can't just set that aside alone either because you, you, have you heard this guilt trip? Well, you all cheer at sports games. I don't see you clapping for Jesus at church. I mean, you've heard it. Everyone's heard it, right? But what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is guilt trips never change anybody. Secondly, if you come to church, I hope you know already your team wins. Right? In, in sports, you don't know. If you're a Cleveland Browns fan, you know your team's losing. All right? that's, that's just, it's on the table. But everyone else, the reason people get excited about games is because you don't know what's going to happen at the start of it. When you come here, I hope you know you win, right? 
If you're on Team Jesus, you win. And so stop, stop with these pathetic guilt trips, right? They don't ever change lives. We must just want, what we want to do is factor investment and intensity together and then ask what we've given our heart to. Okay. So let's take investment first. Just think with me. What, what are you investing in? And when I ask that question, there's three main resources I'm interested in. It's time, money, and energy. Because right, those things are valuable. What, think back over your last week. Think back over your last month. If you, if you were to actually do that pie chart we talked about, what, what's on it? Are you giving mass chunks of time? What are you giving mass chunks of time to that you, that you can't get back? What, what are you investing in financially? I mean, some of you, like, to do, to do these pursuits, you have to buy a lot of stuff. You have to travel and pay for hotels and all this stuff. What are you pouring your energy into? The assumption is this morning that you're tired at the end of the day. If you're not tired at the end of the day, I, I don't even know how to help you, right? You've got all kinds of problems, right? The assumption is that you're tired. The question is why? What did you actually do that wore yourself out? Is there anything on your pie chart that you'd be proud of? Is there anything on there that, that, that you'd admit, oh, man, that's just a giant waste? Is there anything that you need to cut back on? Is there anything, anything that all looks remotely like what we've been called to in Matthew 6? The second question I want you to take inventory of this morning is just intensity. What, what, what do you get excited about? Right? Where, where does your passion come out? What do you, when, when, when conversations hit a lull and it's up to you to continue, what do you start talking about? Right? And if you don't know, just ask those who are around you. They'll tell you. Because this is a great indicator of what we've given our hearts to. Now, my dad was a football coach growing up, my whole life growing up, and so I never sat in the stands. And my mom just refused to sit in the stand. She always sat on the hillside of the games and we could watch the games. And I just thought, you know, when you're a kid, you don't ask any questions. You don't know why. Then I got old enough to go to games myself and I sat in the stands and I learned why. Y'all are nuts. I mean, ser- the, the, one of the most disheartening places to be in the entire world is, is in the stands at a sporting event. Because you guys are crazy, right? It's, you watch as parents just lose their minds. And, and somehow it gets worse as the kids get younger. Have you noticed that? And we don't do this anywhere else, right? None of you are watching your kid, your six-year-old, play tic-tac-toe and screaming at them, what are you doing? When you you go first to tic-tac-toe, you've got to get that middle square. It owns the rest of the board. It opens up all kinds of possibilities. You don't do that, right? I go into uh, my daughter's Christmas program at at Rio Grande Elementary this week. You know what I'm not going to hear? No one's going to yell at the teacher, the music teacher, like they do a coach. Third row? Third row? Are you serious? She needs to be in the second row so her voice can carry more, right? What are you doing putting her in the third row? They're not going to do that, right? You're not screaming at your kids because they chose a poor place in hide and seek. Why? Because your heart's not in it. Your heart's not, you don't find your value in it, okay? And, 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 you ha- and when you haven't given your heart to it, what happens is these parents are finding their identity in their kids' athletic achievement, and it's darkness. It's just darkness, right? What gets you worked up? What gets you excited, what, good and bad? Because when you take investment plus intensity, it's a good indicator of what you've given your heart to. And I want to invite you all this morning just to breathe. All right, because I know you haven't gotten this right. But I want, to, I want to confess to you, I haven't gotten this right either. This is why grace is so important. This is why Jesus had to die on the cross, because we're a mess, man. We get things wrong all the time. We drop the ball all the time. But I don't want us today to trample on grace. 
There's a difference between being thankful for grace and relying on grace and leaning on grace and then, and then presuming upon it. So I want us to be thankful for grace, but also take the gift of time seriously. And so I want to give you three challenges. Three challenges that I think will help all of us in this. First, turn to Luke chapter 10. It's a couple books to your right in the Bible, in the New Testament. Luke chapter 10. There's a really famous story in Luke chapter 10 that we make a lot of bad assumptions out of. And so we want to cover it and, and, and not have a bad assumption, but take a good one. So Luke chapter 10, I'm going to start in verse 38. Give you a moment to turn there. Luke 10, 38 says, As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. And Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Now this is a famous story, and, 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 and there are, like I said, there are misconceptions that we have from it, so I want us to get it right. But challenge number one today is reprioritize what actually matters. Reprioritize what actually matters. And first, to understand this, I want us to go over what Jesus didn't say. Because it's important, because I've heard people take this out of this story, and, and Jesus never says it. Number one, he doesn't say, only be like Mary. He doesn't say there's no room for Martha's out there anywhere. He doesn't say that. It's, if you can't find it, it's not in there. Right? Number two, what else does he, he doesn't say that what Martha was doing was bad. You can't find it in there. He didn't say it. And number three, he didn't say nothing else matters in life at all other than this. But what did he say? He said there's one thing that's actually truly needed in this life. There's one thing that rises above all the rest. There's one thing that is more important. There's one thing that needs to be a priority in your life, and that's sitting at the feet of Jesus. By the way, that's not being in a hurry. And so if we're going to get anything right in this battle, we need to start right here. Because before we can represent Christ, before we can imitate Jesus, before we can serve God as we should, before we can ever get to work building his kingdom, we must first spend time with him and learn from him and get closer to him. And every single moment that we spend with our Savior is a moment that is not wasted and a moment that we will never regret. Do you know why this is important? Just look at Martha. Martha wasn't doing anything wrong. In fact, you could argue she was doing awesome things. She didn't have to open her home. She didn't have to, to be hospitable. She didn't have to serve Jesus in his disciples' dinner. She didn't have to do anything. She was serving them out of the goodness of her heart as an act of grace and love and devotion to them. And what did it get her? Well, she felt cheated. And she was offended and she was upset. And she was angry that other people weren't working as hard as her. And she felt like a victim. Man, you ever felt that way after serving the Lord or his church? If your service to Christ or his church ends in that, there's something off in your heart when it comes to your service. If your service to him ends in you feeling cheated or slighted or comparing your work to other people and getting angry and upset, there's something off in your heart. This is why we need to start at his feet. 
We just start our day at his feet, unhurried, unrushed, just giving him at least a few moments. We just start anytime we, we give an act of service to him, we start at his feet. Anytime we, we, we think of things that are going to impact our entire lives, we start at his feet and learn from him first. You've got to get in his word. You've got to communicate with him in prayer. You've got you to make church, the local church, a priority where you can come and you can worship him. You need to look for connection points in your life, things that draw you closer to the God who made you. And Jesus says, this is highest priority. This is step one. So reprioritize what matters. Number two, then get to work on the other things that matter. You have one life, and James describes it as this. It's a mist that appears for a little while, and then it's gone. It's just like, poof, it wasn't even there. You get one opportunity at this. And so the question is, why not extend it? Right? You get one life, you might as well make it last forever. You get one life, you might as well make what you do last forever. And the only way that's possible is, is to enter into a relationship with the God who made you. The only way it's possible is through his son, Jesus. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why Jesus had to come to this earth. It's why he had to live the perfect life that you and I have not. It's why he had to die on the cross for the sins of all of us and nothing that he'd done wrong. And it's why he had to defeat death and rise again. So that what could be laid before you is this. If that number one, you admit that you're a sinner and you need him. Number two, you believe that he died on your behalf on the cross. Number three, you believe that he rose from the dead. Then number four, all you have to do is believe in him and ask him to save you and he will. He will forgive you of your sins. His spirit will indwell in you and you'll be given eternal life. Life forever and it starts now. There's nothing more important for you to do in this one life than that. It's the only thing that will extend it. But if you've done that this morning, then, then I want you to hear your calling today. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says this. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The context of that verse is for the first 57 verses of that chapter, Paul has broken down the gospel that I just shared with you. That Jesus came to the earth, he lived the perfect life, he died and rose again. And Paul says, in light of that, here's what we are to do, right? First, we stand firm, which means we don't trust in anything other than the gospel of Jesus. You don't put your hope in anything other than him. And then he says, let nothing move you, knowing that we're always going to have things that pull us away, whether it be the sway of culture or money or that pretty guy or girl or your kid having some incredible talent. All these things are going to try to pull you from this service. He says, don't do that, don't let anything move you. And the big thrust is that you are always to give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. This is a devoted, full commitment for the rest of my days. Which means that any of you who see church as God time and the rest as yours, this verse ruins that for you. It means that any of you who think that, well, you know, I, I served the church. I served God when I was younger and now it's, now it's time for the young people to do that. This verse ruins that for you. If you're not dead this morning, this is what you're called to. And the guarantee is that nothing you do for God is in vain. Nothing you do for God will ever be useless. Do you realize how many things that you've given time and energy and investment to in your life that are totally in vain and useless? But not this, we're told. So get to, number two, get to work on things that matter. And then number three, this is the part that will hurt. This is the cost and sacrifice part. Shed the things in your life that don't matter. Now let's just be honest. If we went around this room this morning, we'd probably be shocked by how much time we spent on things that don't matter. And I, I know you're busy. I get it. 
But man, I'm telling you what, if social media has proven anything, it's this. If God were to ask us why we didn't change the world, the one thing we can't tell him is that we didn't have the time. There are things in my life that aren't important that I've given too much time to. There are things in your life as well. And if we're going to be serious about this, we've got to get the knife out. We do this with other resources. We set budgets for our money. Why not budgets for our time? Why not, why not you make sure you, you limit things? It's time to remove the hold some, some of your pursuits have on you. It's time to free up the time those things demand. It's time to take the hard step of saying no to stuff. Because the reality is this, you and I live in a sin-stained world that's never going to change. The reality is this, our time here is limited, it's never going to change. So this is undeniably true that cost and sacrifice are unavoidable in this life. You have to say no to something, you can't do it all. But you know what we often do, our most common mistake? Is that under that press we sacrifice and give up the things that matter most first. The busier we are and the more tired we are, the first things to go are the things of God. Well, no, I haven't been in the Word lately. You see, I've just been so busy. Well, it's just, you see, it's just that Sundays are my only day off. So I, I need to rest. I know there's, there's good that I can do from a church. I know there's talents that I can use them. But, but man, I'm worn out. I got to give up something. And what happens is our lives end up looking like the verse says this, that you are to seek God's kingdom and righteousness when it's convenient. That you seek God's kingdom and righteousness when you have the time. You're to seek God's kingdom and righteousness when it's easy for you. You seek God's kingdom and righteousness when you have nothing else going on. You're to seek God's kingdom and righteousness when you're fully rested. That's not what we're called to, is it? I want to be very clear with you this morning. Your kids' extracurricular activities should not govern your life. Your career ambitions should not govern your life. Your idea of a dream home should not govern your life. Your pursuit of a hobby or an interest of a sport should not govern your life. Seeking first, above all else, the kingdom of God and his righteousness should govern your life. It should dictate what you spend time on. It should dictate what you spend money on. It should dictate what you're dragging your family around endlessly for. It should dictate what you get passionate about. This life is an incredible gift. And every second of time that we're given is a resource. It's a valuable resource. We'll never get back. And so it's astounding to me that we would give any of that away without first asking God if that's what he wants us to do with it. And yet I wonder this morning how much of your December is already gone. How much of your 2018 is already committed to being given away and how much of that did you actually run by God before you said yes? It's time that we reprioritize what matters. It's time that we get to work on the things that do and it's time that we shed the things that don't. There's a song, there's a Christmas song we sing this time, We Three Kings. By the way, can I spoil that for you? I don't know if there are three kings. You know that? The Bible never says there were three magi. It just says there were three gifts, right? We assume that. We're wrong. So, so we don't sing that song much around here because it's incorrect, okay? But anyways, the magi, these magi travel incredible distances, right? They travel for, for, for months at a time, and they arrive in Jerusalem, and they ask, in Matthew 2, they ask, where's the Messiah? Where's the child who's born the king of the Jews? And you know what Matthew tells us? It says that the whole city was stirred. I mean, they were, they were stunned. They were shocked that, that somebody was there asking for this. By the way, Jesus at this time was almost two years old. 
And you know what's really weird about that? Supposedly the Messiah was the hope of the Jewish nation. Supposedly they were the people that were waiting in anxious anticipation for the arrival of this child. Supposedly they were the ones who were supposed to recognize when he comes. And by the way, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, do you know that city was jam-packed full of people? There's no room at the end of the state because of the census that had been called. And so eight days later, not only is he born in there, they, Mary and Joseph take him to Jerusalem that's also crawling with people. And yet the list of people who notice what happened is woefully small. It's a handful of shepherds who had to have angels from heaven fill them in. It's a man named Simeon, a widow named Anna, and three foreign dudes. And that's the list. So what happened? Well, my theory is that they were just all too busy. They all had their own things going on. Right? I mean, can you imagine if, if someone called a census today and, and all of a sudden you had to pick up and move your family to a town of your ancestry, how hard that would be? And then once you're there, you've got to figure out how am I going to make a living and how we're going to work this out and how long do we have to be here? And you've got to talk about the political climate of the day. Herod seems like a nut job. Are we safe under him? All this stuff, right? And so what happens is they got so focused on their own small, insignificant, temporary deals that they missed on the most significant moment in all of eternity. They missed what God was up to. And I have a question for you today that's unanswerable, but I hope it's maddening to you. What all have you missed? What all have I missed? We, we don't know the answer to that, but how, how many significant moments? How many marvelous gifts from God have just come and passed and we didn't even notice? How many moments where we could have got in the game and played? How many moments of eternal ramifications were handed right to us and we missed them? All at the altar of our small, insignificant, temporary deals. Clovis Chapel was a pretty big deal, famous preacher in the first half of the 20th century. In one of his sermons, he tells the story of, of two paddle boats that were traveling down the Mississippi River. It's early 1900s, is how a lot of cargo was shipped. And so these two paddle boats leave their destination at the same time. They're traveling actually side by side down this river. And at some point, somebody got lippy. Right, somebody started exchanging words, there was some trash talk, and they challenged each other to race to their arrival. And so they started, race was on, but, ha but halfway into the race, one of the boats began to fall back because they didn't plan for a race. They brought enough coal to get them to their destination. They didn't bring enough to get them there at a high speed. And so as they start falling back, the people in the, in the lead boat start talking and start celebrating. And it, and it bothered someone on the, on, the, on the boat that was behind enough that he grabbed the cargo that they were supposed to haul and he started throwing it into the fire. And as the cargo burned, the boat began to speed up. And so everyone else in the boat noticed that. And so they all grabbed everything they could and threw it in the fire and the boat got faster and faster. And they passed the other boat and they get to the destination first and they won. And they had no cargo. The trip was entirely pointless. They went all the way down the Mississippi and they had nothing to show for it. They ended up winning the race, but the trip was vain. They ended up winning the race. The trip was entirely useless. Do you realize everything that you have in this life is a gift from God? Your time, your health, your family, your resources, your interests, your job, your passions. The question I want to ask you today is are you burning through your cargo? When you get to the end of your time, having spent it all, will you have nothing to show for it? Or imagine, just imagine with me for a second, doing this instead. Imagine coming to the end of your life and still having all your cargo. Ima imagine having lost none of what he gave you. 
And yet through his power, still adding more to it. Imagine knowing that everything you did mattered. Imagine transforming your interests into platforms for God's kingdom. Imagine leveraging the home that he's given you to a place where God is glorified and others are loved. Imagine your family being sent out on mission and impacting where God has them for him. Imagine feeling no regret for wasted years or wasted time or wasted pursuits because you sought first the kingdom of God. Imagine coming to the end of your life fully prepared for an attorney with your king because you got to know him so well while you were here. Imagine a trove of treasures waiting on you when you get there that haven't even begun to spoil or fade. Imagine seeing the face of the one who died for you and him reaching out his hand and pulling you close and telling you, well done, my good and faithful servant. And imagine the fullness of reality hitting you in that moment where you understand finally the folly of pursuing and seeking and chasing anything first or above God. And imagine starting now with that day in mind, with that moment in mind, with that reality fully in mind, starting now by reprioritizing what matters and giving him first, starting now by getting to work on things that matter and more importantly, shedding the things that don't. And you only have one life. You might as well make it last forever. Father, we thank you for just the gift of life. Thank you for the gift of time. And Lord, I'm grateful for everyone who chose to use their time this morning to be here. It's a wise and valuable investment. I pray that you will fulfill them for it, God. That you'll bless them for it. And Lord, I pray right now for those in our midst who've who've never taken that first step of giving their lives to Jesus Christ, they've never believed in him and asked him for forgiveness of their sins and and the gift of eternal life. I pray that that they would do that because that is the first and most important thing we could ever do with this life. Lord, I pray that they would make that decision right now in their seat to just say, yes, Lord, forgive me, take over my life. And then God, for the rest of us, so I ask that your spirit would begin to probe the things that we invest in and the things that we give intensity to. And God, we begin to ask you, what have we given our heart to? What have we given too much of our time to? What have we given too much of our energy and resources to? And what are the things that are already in my life that I can use as platforms for you? Lord, make us a church that always starts at your feet. And then when we are sent, that we go to work on the things that matter. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stay in the same.